0: Hello and welcome to the Language of Mindfulness podcast. This is a podcast for people who want to have more great conversations in your life. You want to connect, you want to speak authentically, and you want to listen deeply. This is how to do it, and it's the real deal. So why should you listen to the Language of Mindfulness? Because in every episode, I'm going to give you tips and guidance I've learned in my pretty extensive career of coaching and practice from the best and brightest in the field of interpersonal communications, public speaking, meditation, group leadership, and somatic psychology. And we're going to have interviews with some amazing people about their groundbreaking work. It's my goal to give actionable and uncommon tips and advice in every episode that you can implement right away. So subscribe or follow now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And if you don't listen, you're going to miss some great stuff that you just won't hear anywhere else. I'm your host, Brett Hill, and welcome to the Language of Mindfulness. I can't tell you how happy I am to have Aaron Huey on the podcast today. Um, We had a great conversation the other day and I thought I have just got to get this guy on uh, language of mindfulness because um, he's got a message and he's on fire and you're going to feel the heat. Let me tell you a little bit about this guy before we get started. Uh, He's the founder of Parenting Teens That Struggle and the host of the number one parenting podcast, Beyond Risk and Back, which is a mental health news radio network's highest rated show internationally. He's a parent coach for parents of kids at risk, a teen addiction interventionist. He facilitates powerful parenting events and is a very happy husband and father of two young adults. Aaron is an internationally known lecturer on ARCTEPO, is that right, archetypal? That's right, archetypal. Archetypal, archetypal imagery, body language, and martial arts. And is the founder and president of Fire Mountain Programs. And since 2004, he has run kids' camps, teen camps, and family programming. In 2009, he and his wife Christine opened a residential mental health and dependency recovery—excuse me—a residential mental health and dependency recovery treatment center for teens ages 12 to 17 in Colorado. I mean, come on, this is the real deal here, people. I mean, 12 to 17-year-old troubled teens. I mean th- it, this is serious serious news. Fire Mountain Residential Treatment Center was named one of the top 50 healthcare providers in the United States in 2019 and in 2020 named one of the top 100 innovators in healthcare. Top innovators in healthcare. I mean that's kind of a broad category. <laughs> it's pretty it's
1: pretty broad.
0: So Welcome to the show. I'm really happy to have you here, Brett.
1: Thanks. I really enjoyed our conversation the other day as well. Also finding out that we're from the same stomp of the woods and and uh, probably yeah, yeah. You're in Boulder.
0: You're in Boulder, and we were uh, uh, both uh, attending this place. It was a Solstice Institute at the time, I believe, up there on Pearl and and uh, Pearl. They did some. Back in the day, I used to do contact improvisation and they're having ecstatic dance workshops and all kinds of stuff. And I think we were talking like, well, maybe we, uh, you know, did some contact <laughs> improvisation and rolled around on top of each other, sweating it out. Who knows? You know, kind of like you know, th- strange things happen back in when strange you're doing Strange things uh, happen in Boulder, period. <laughs> that's, <how> I, <laughs> that's right. Oh, man. Yeah. I remember uh, doing some uh, uh, contact improv workshops uh, at Naropa. And I'm—I <laughs> actually missed this. Straight, it's like they do this warm-up exercise, and uh, and what it is is everybody in the class just lays down on the floor, and you lay down the floor for like ten minutes, and you just do whatever. I mean, there—it's all the sensors are off. It's like nothing is out of bounds, and people will just stand there and just go, just flop on the ground and just go. Blah, 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 blah. Well, they would just like, or they just make frog noises or chirp or scream and everybody's like, okay, cool, whatever. You know, it's kind of like there are no boundaries when it comes to that because it's all this somatic experiencing sort of thing. You know, I've I've and hired...
1: I have hired so many neuropa therapists through the years uh, in, in running the treatment center. I've had a lot of neuropa interns come through my treatment center as well. And I have to say they have some of the most heartfelt modalities, truly understanding, truly connective, truly absorbing the, the whole somatic experience of what a teenager is going through, even in a deep moment of crisis. Um, Naropa oh, especially, needs some, right? yeah, especially the- some of the best interventions I have ever seen a ther- therapist do with kids have all been Naropa interns who are putting just this, this out-of-the-box theory directly into practice and watching the innovation do the intervention. Now, on the other side of it, Naropa needs to offer their therapist some business classes because the, the, the feeling experiential interventions are incredible. You also got to write notes. You also have to know how to submit to insurance. You also know how to market your business <laughs> and be a good employee. So oh, that's what I'll the, say. The real world side. Of real world, thing, right? but my God, Naropa has Christine Caldwell, who is part of the somatic counseling program there at Naropa. One of one of the
0: geniuses of of the work of psycho in the psychology world. Yeah, I'm so you're so right in the sense that the 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 focus. And for those of you who don't know, Naropa is a Buddhist establishment that was a, it's a university. It's a, well, it's a college, I guess. It's a university. There's actually Naropa University, right? Yeah. And you can go there in Boulder and get uh, degrees in contemplative arts and degrees in somatic psychotherapy and modern dance and all kinds of stuff. And it has some of the Best, absolutely best cutting edge stuff going on there ever. Um, and so they were doing the kind of thing I was into, which was somatic psychotherapy back in the day with Ron Kurtz and um, the Hakomi Institute, also in Boulder at the time. And so all of this somatic experience stuff for me was very much in focus in my world and, and it continues to inform my work dramatically. And I can't even imagine how you could do the kind of thing you do, which is. You know this these interventions and also just creating safe spaces for kids who are who are really struggling, without some kind of, here's how you be present for that. You have to, and like I said, one of the one of the best things
1: I saw a a uh, a situation we had in the early days of Fire Mountain where a girl had a big blowout in family counseling, stormed out of the room, screaming obscenities, throwing things around the facility, went to a room therapist followed at a distance. And because we knew this girl had been prone to violent outbursts, I followed, uh, I followed again at a distance. And uh, what, I, what I noticed, uh, the girl went, went stomping into her room and um, sat down in her bed and the therapist went into the room and I stayed outside. I stayed uh, at, at a little bit of distance. I didn't want to present or provide any more um, intensity. And it yeah. was dead silent in the room. It was, it was absolutely dead silent. And I, about five minutes later, I looked in and the therapist was sitting in lotus position, just legs crossed, mm. eyes closed, breathing very, very deeply on the ground. And I said, okay. And the, and the girl was facing the wall on her bed. And I, I, I stayed there for a minute. And then about 10 minutes later, I heard the girl say, what are you doing? Mm -hmm. And I peeked in the room and she had turned around to face the therapist. And the therapist opened her eyes and she said, I was just waiting. I didn't want to add anything. I just wanted you to have your moment. Are you okay? And the girl burst into tears. No, I'm not. Why does my mom not trust me? And it went into this huge connection and it was yeah. it was in the early days that what i learned from our neuropa interns and our neuropa therapists and good therapists in general is that you have to get connection before you can create correction you have
0: to get alliance
1: before you get compliance
0: yeah i mean there is so much wisdom in that i can't tell you how often i see coaches and therapists and people in the in the biz right who just don't honor the fact that you have to create enough space in whoever you're dealing with to allow them to want to be real with you or what your conversation you're going to have is going to be something other than a connected, honest, authentic conversation. I
1: don't know how often we have to say to parents or to clinicians or to teachers, anybody, a mentor, a coach, a supporter of human growth and potential, I don't know how often we have to say, ad nauseum, they don't care how much you know until they know how they much know you care. You do care right? I, you. It's, it's, it's very simple. And we demonstrate caring through being present. That That means not being caught up in your own emotional experience, triggers mm-hmm. and trauma of what they're going through or what they're doing, which means you have to remain in your prefrontal cortex. You cannot sink back into... Mm-hmm. Fight flight, freeze, faint, fornicate feet which are which right. are the you know the, 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 the limbic brain responses. if you are a lizard, that is your life. fight, flight, freeze, faint, fornicate feet. That is all you know how to do And If you've ever had a pet lizard, try to force it to eat like try to force yeah. it to the hot right. rock where it can relax. Try to force relaxation. try to hate something into something you love right That's mm-hmm. not alliance, that's not connection. If you grab a lizard to make it eat, Its response is fight, flight, freeze, fate, fornicate, feed. It's going to try to eat you. It's (laughs) going to try to have sex with your finger. It's going to, (laughs) how, so when we, when we are working on intervening on our children's behavior, that seems to take precedence over intervening, on our own response to what kids are good. And I'm talking about deep crisis. My child is throwing their chicken sticks on the ground and won't put on their shoes. Yeah, no, I'm talking about your kids OD'd three times. What now? You know, your kid's in an acute unit because they cut themselves and it went too deep and now they have stitches. Was it suicidal? I'm not sure. I heard cutting and suicide aren't related, but 90% of kids who attempt suicide are practicing self-harmers. So is it related or not? That spin, that parenting spin, what good parenting decision can be made from fear fatigue, anxiety, or anger. It doesn't matter how much you love. If you're loving from fear, fatigue, anxiety, or anger, which is every parent whose child is in crisis.
0: Yeah. What can right. you do? I mean, how do you, how do you, you're, you're living with these people you you're deeply invested. You care a lot. They're out of control. They need some boundaries and they refuse them from you. How do, you, how do you get your own nervous system to just chill long enough to be able to be uh, of some, um, some support, uh, of some actual help? This is a great, this is the question,
1: right? And it is the essence of what we want our kids to do. What we want our kids to do is to acknowledge and, and accommodate our value systems. That's what we want. But see, every child at some point has to reject your value system to develop their own. And what you will realize when your child makes it to 30 years old is that theirs looks a lot like yours <laughs> because it's gonna mo- they're going to model you right? And we know that because if I said, Hey, Brett, think of one lecture your mother or father gave you that changed your life. Just one, just think of one. You tell me when well, your dad sat you down and said, Brett, here's what you and what you need and what you got to get through your thick head and what you, and you went to sleep and you woke up the next day and you went, gosh, golly gee, my dad is right. I'm going <laughs> to change my ways. It just doesn't happen like that. We do what our parents did or we do what our parents didn't do. So all that stepping back, your child is in a full spin-off. And it's now spun the whole family. Out. This 14-year-old, this 17-year-old is controlling the house with their mm-hmm. dysregulated nervous system. And let's agree that the strongest nervous system wins. I didn't say healthiest. I said strongest. A child mm-hmm. screaming obscenities and kicking a hole in the wall because you took away their video game controller, currently in that moment, may be the strongest nervous system. So in that moment, you have one question that can pull you back into prefrontal cortex parenting. What yeah. does taking care of myself in this moment look like? Because what we're ultimately hoping our children do is take care of themselves. And we so we model that. Right we, you have right. to. We, 99% of the time, we have to say, what works for me? What's going to help me sleep tonight? Because the moment our system is deregulated, dysregulated, the moment our system is diseased, we go into letting the foundations of personal care collapse. Sleep, eating nutritious food, drinking water, moving our bodies, and breathing on purpose. Those are the five things that when one of those fails, it dominoes the rest. Right? So you have to, on purpose, put one back in place. And look what happened, Brett. The moment I took a deep breath, you followed. And I remember when you and I were doing your show, you took a deep breath and I was right with you because you mirrored it. So let's do it again. Now, You just took a breath on purpose. You are now practicing self-care. Congratulations. Give yourself a high five and say you are an amazing parent. Now go get a glass of water on purpose. Because this on-purpose self-care is where it begins. And when you do it 10,000 times, what do the Chinese say? Well, then you can't forget it. And that's mm-hmm. what it takes. And it's hard when your kid's spun out and are, is really struggling and is an acute unit. And they're saying insurance isn't going to pay, but he needs, child, he needs residential care. And you're like, what the? F-? And my, my marriage is a shambles and me and my ex are battling it head to toe. And I haven't been to work in three days because I've had to. And now the kid is sneaking out of the house. Self-care? Mm-hmm. Yes, that's what you do in that moment.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Even if all you have is a Beautiful. moment
0: beautiful and, uh, and and it seems to me important to reinforce the notion that those types of capacity the, the ability to do that, the ability to go what I really need to do here is take a breath is not going to be something you do you have the, the ability to do unless you do it when you're also not under stress. you have to you have to practice you have to habituate this or, or create literally create the neural wiring for it. I was doing a show earlier today on my podcast about
1: neuro-linguistic programming. And neuro-linguistic programmers love to call themselves practitioners. And I think that's the most powerful word of the statement is the practitioner. Because you cannot expect to do NLP, which when it flows, it's magical. But you cannot expect to flow it unless you practice it. A mirror, validate, empathize is one of the the cornerstone of couples therapy and parent and parent counseling exercises, how to listen, how to shut the F up and truly listen without judgment and validate Mm -hmm. and reflect back, mirror, validate, and then empathize, create an empathic connection. You have to practice that because in the moment when the kid's screaming obscenities at you, you have to go to muscle memory. And that's the worst thing we are as parents, as... Mm -hmm muscle memorizers of how we were parented or weren't parented that our conditioned reaction, not response, even conditioned reaction is behaviorally based that just makes it worse. (laughs) Automatic reaction, behavioral base, and it is just criticism and it digs the hole deeper. And all we're left with is expectations of others.
0: You know, it's, it's me experiencing you, it's kind of like, oh my God, you're so lit, you're so passionate, you're so driven. It feels like, and I'm, I'm just now, my, I have question marks around all that because I'm, for one thing, that seems like that's probably hard to manage. But the other thing is like, how did you? Why are you so? Why are you so on fire about all this? First of all, I thank you.
1: And it's not hard to manage. It is literally who I am. I am on or I am off. And on, I'm extremely ADHD. I am, I am a neurodivergent. I love that new term. I embrace it. I, I am <laughs> neurodivergent. And my life of high energy, when I did uh, Martin Noyes' process, the Enlightenment Intensive, and uh, mm-hmm. I, I, you know, doing that, that single question meditation and response for four days, literally four days of someone asking me, tell me who you are. And me emptying my brain and them saying it again, until you get to the answer that you're like, oh my God, that's true. That's who I am. The answer I got to is I am God's caffeine buzz. And that is (laughs) what what it. Now, (laughs) archetypally, what that means is I am an energetic expression of divinity. And and I can manifest this because it is h- how my brain acts. It's how my blood pumps. It is it is nothing but heavy metal dancing flamenco, heavy metal flamenco dancing <laughs> scream therapy up here. And <laughs> why and, I and care floors on fire. And the, <laughs> why I care so much is that a I had a traumatizing childhood. I have had an absent biological father. I was bullied mercilessly, I was sexually assaulted, and I was ADHD, and all those things combined uh, allowed me to embrace cannabis and LSD and alcohol as a maladaptive coping strategy. And B, I had phenomenal parents. The man who raised me, my dad, took on a, a very difficult, intense, boy and turned him into a man and showed him how to be a man. And my mom is very progressive, thought things through and a community leader for parents. And so I was modeled the best things that a parent can do with their slip ups. Uh, of course there are slip ups. We are human. Even Jesus went through the temple with a whip, you know, the Prince of peace. He was pissed, mm-hmm. but it was those 40 days in the desert afterwards that made us go, Ah, my nervous system was shot and my parents were willing to come back and make amends and apologize and ask for a redo. And Mm -hmm. so that's what I learned is that I brought a lot of struggle and my parents brought a lot of grace and they allowed me to be that fire in the mountain that when Mm -hmm. unleashed, illuminated the heavenly Heights. Parents need help teenagers, this, this struggle. I I don't want to hear any parents say, well, I was a teenager once and it was tough on me. Yes. Not only that, but we did not have the understanding of trauma that we do now. So most likely you're traumatized as well, but B I say to any Gen Xer or boomer out there with all the love in my heart, when was the last time as a child you had to practice a live shooter drill at school? Times have changed. When we were children, we did not have total access to the Library of Alexandria in our pockets, and 30% of the library is pornography. As a child, we were not exposed to consistent bombardment and anarchy of violence like we are now. Children have been traumatized. We understand this in science. Trauma is also expressed genetically. We understand this through epigenetics. So regardless of how we were as kids, we're more resilient. We're this and this and that. (laughs) While that is true, we did not have to face what these kids have to face. And we need to get that through our heads, soften our hearts, and open to a true emotional intelligence that must take place now.
0: Mm, beautiful. Wow. Wow. No wonder I wanted you on the show. It's like amazing. I I um and I just, you know, I'm so appreciative of the work that you're doing and how was it that you got started like, you know, establishing a center? Like what was it that moved you to to I mean, you look out and you, and somehow you said I have to do something. I have to I have to help people uh get the skills and and you, you got started with that. So what was that story, story like? So after I got sober, um, May 21st,
1: 1998, at about high noon, and the-, uh, uh, the well, That ex- was like a decision moment for you right there. Well, it was a rock bottom moment and with divine intervention. I had prayed for a oh. miracle, and I had received one on the side of a, of a country road outside of Longmont, Colorado, um, and was at a 12-step meeting the next day. And had a wonderful intervention from the man who became my sponsor, uh, as I turned to punch him in the face. And he did not flinch, nor did he tolerate my BS. Um, and so I immediately had the, the utmost respect, dove deep did, into Did you m- punch him? No, what had what had happened, and this this shows you the arrogance, not just of an addict, but of Aaron. Is that at <laughs> my very first meeting, my very first twelve step meeting, they announced it was a speaker's meeting. So naturally, I assumed they meant me. <laughs> <laughs> of course, of course. Why wouldn't they? I'm the new kid well, on the what block. Was about me? I've got a story. You know, <laughs> this is going to change your life. So I stood up to talk when they called the speaker forward, and this guy grabbed me by my shirt and yanked me down in my chair. And I turned to swing on him, and he was this big biker dude, Um, just massive belly and beard and completely unflinching. And he (laughs) leveled me with a gaze, and he goes, sit the fuck down and shut the fuck up for once in your life, and maybe you'll learn something. (laughs) And the room was just dead quiet, and I sat down, and the person got up to speak and said, it started smoking weed at 12 years old. I didn't have a biological father and I was bullied. And he continued to tell my story. And I realized in that moment that I was no longer terminally unique, that I was going to survive and I wasn't going to die by lonely. And I asked that biker to be my sponsor and humbly said, would you be my sponsor? I think I found someone who can Deal with me. And he goes, set
0: Of course, me, I'm um, going shut me up.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, Would you be my sponsor? He goes, Of course, I'm going to be your sponsor. <laughs> and this same man, job, buddy. <laughs> this same man, four months later, sitting with me at, at Perkins at four in the morning because I was jonesing so hard, drinking milkshakes, sobbing into my milkshake and bearing his heart and soul to me. For me, it wasn't the steps. It was the connection that I needed, that I had longed for so deeply. So I told my boss, and this is, this is at the time I was actually working there at, at the Pearl Street Studios down there in 3rd and Pearl. We were running a kids camp there. It was the only job I had had in 14 years that I wasn't high end. And because I was working with kids, but you can imagine the moment I was in my truck to go home, I was high again, but yeah. Yeah. I told, I told my boss that I was an addict and not only was he supportive and loving, but after that following summer, he had, he had bumped me up to, uh, assistant director of the program, um, and, and through these kids' camps, these these summer play camps that we had done, I started running teen rites of passage programs. And archetypal camps, a warrior camp, a wizard camp, a jester camp and a bard camp, where we're showing kids, you can play this in a game, you can play this in Dungeons and Dragons, you can watch it on TV and in movies, but what's it like to be a wizard in real life? What's it like to be a bard and wear your emotions on your sleeve and be empathic? What's it like to be a jester and truly live for this moment? Those are the archetypes. The, these images that we hold that if I say, Brett, what does a warrior have in his right hand? Mm-hmm. Your answer is reinforcing the symbol of a sword and a warrior together. And it also reinforces that it's a male and that he's right-handed. And what right-handed and the masculine energy it means and that's archetypal symbolism. But I wanted to show mm-hmm. kids how to take this thing, this fantasy of heroism, and make it real. Comic books, Dungeons and Dragons. It was my life as a child. Martial arts, outdoor survival, emergency medicine. All I wanted to be when I grew up was a fire truck. And just be on the way to an emergency to help people. So all my hobbies reflected that. So I would started these kids camps to help them take the fantasy of being a hero into reality. How do you do that? And that, that then became... it it, it was a dawning of how important it was to create a rite of passage experience for teenagers to become adults Mm -hmm. led to and through that archetypal doorway by adults in the community. And the success was overwhelming. And we had one parent who called whose kid was just really struggling. And they said, can my kid just come live with you? I had a martial arts school. I was going to 12 step meetings, two times a day, was leading these camps. (laughs) And so I said, "Well, do online school. Go to my martial arts classes every day, and go to meetings with me. We'll hit the gym in the morning. Yeah, this sounds good." And she told her sister, who told her friend. The friend called us and said, "Can my son come live with you too?" And Brett, within a week, we had six boys and four on a wait list moving into my children's home. Uh, six months later, we moved my children out, and the home became a sober model that when we started working with insurance became a treatment center, a licensed program. We moved up to a 40 acre, you know, 36,000 square foot property that I own up in Estes park. And until 12 days ago, we had been running full steam and 12 days ago, I had to shut the program down because of property insurance, because of the fires in Estes park, my property insurance went from $20,000 a year to $470,000 a year, and I could no longer afford to run the program. So as of, as of 12 days ago, Fire Mountain Residential Treatment Center no longer exists, but we are resurrecting the camps, my coaching practice, obviously my podcast. So that's the story from 2009 to 2000 and now of what, what happened, how we ended up where we are.
0: Hmm. Wow. Amazing. That's, um, that's a big, big deal story. You got there. I'm, I'm just so impressed with the, the work that you're doing and how you got there and your passion and your skill, you know, cause you've invested quite a bit of time to actually not just, not just, uh, take effective action but to do it skillfully and and you've got so much energy that you're dealing with in the real world and and bringing your own significant capacity to bear on how to be powerful force for all these kids is just it's just amazing so um i'm really humbled i think to uh bear witness to that and, and that, you know, your opening story about making space and I, j- I kind of want to almost loop all the way back around to that because the the therapist coming back in and sitting down and just being present without interrupting and making space, it takes a lot of um, willingness to just be still and, and with yourself, just be with yourself in the midst of all this turmoil enough to just make space is almost a, it's, it's you're connected but and engaged but you're not it's a uh, it's a receptivity where you're just it's and it's like an offering you're like holding space for someone else to just em- let whatever wants to happen emerge and then that makes possible something completely different so this person you know this this uh, young girl i think it was turned around and said you know what are you doing and then and then opens up because now it's safe for me to do so and then your other commentary about taking a breath and taking care of yourself that also in a way creates space because you're not invading your 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 cohering your own energy enough to kind of be present with what's going on and so to me, there's a lot of just um, being in your own core enough to be able to um, be present with all this, b- these tsunamis of experience. And I wanted to ask you, like, because you, you have so much energy, but yet you've managed to find a way to kind of like be in the center of it rather than necessarily whipped around by it. And uh, you, you know, I really liked your your thing. You said you're you had a fire truck, and you wanted to be the fire truck. And now, now you became the fire itself, you know. And I'm on. I'm wondering how did you learn to do that? Like uh, you talked about the the training that you went to. What other schools or practices where where you learned to just kind of like I'm I'm in the center of my world here, and I have some authority over that. You know. In, in all transparency, and, and for the record, I believe
1: transparency is the new tough love. I, I believe that tough love as a philosophy has failed. I believe mm-hmm. that transparency will succeed where tough love failed. And in transparency is that this was learned once the rocket was launched. This was not, I, I, I barely made it out of high school. I went to, I went to yeah. acting school. Afterwards, at the only I, I found out two days before graduation of high school that I was graduating, and I, I, I did not enter this world with any plans to be a businessman. And as far as I'm concerned, one day Odin told me what I was doing. And when that big voice of the Al Fadir speaks, you listen. This is this <laughs> that's the divine saying. Your wound is your way. Your pain is your path. Your tears are the trail. Your wreckage is your resume. So my resume was getting clean and everything Mm -hmm. that came with that. To to understand the steps, to understand the symbolism of what I've gone through is now the hero's journey complete. And Mm -hmm. now that I've walked the hero's journey, I can be a mentor for this. That's the 12th step to give the the message of hope to those who still suffer and how to stand in the place of hope. What does that mean to be hope? For me, and I I mean this with all sincerity, hope is the fire truck. My mom asked me when I was a little kid, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, a fire truck. And she goes, don't you mean a fireman? I was like, no. (laughs) I want to be the truck. Now, symbolically, I think back first of all let's let's state the obvious the noise the the center of attention the 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 noticing you can't help but notice the fire truck and as a kid who was abandoned by his father, what more important thing could I ask for than to be noticed when I walk down the street? I was born looking for my parade, and being a fire truck would be the answer to that lights, sirens, sound, and an anchor to what to help us on the way to to I've got a team, and this team is trained, and we can help. We can handle anything. In fact, we can enter into the flames with courage, with the proper gear and training, but with the confidence that we are going to give everything to the cause that is directly in front of us. And that desire in my life has put me in a place of wanting these trainings, martial arts, outdoor survival, emergency medicine. Mm -hmm. Can I become the person? Can this ADHD, this brain that only thrives when all around is chaotic. And I go, ah, I am home, right? Because when everything else is, oh, my brain is, and so I have to create an environment for me that allows me to focus. So that means I got to take the, the extemporary, the extemporaneous, the extra and just calm it. And when a kid comes storming out of the lunchroom in their Fists are curled up and their arms are flexed like Wolverine, and they're in a full boxer hunch, and they're screaming obscenities. I'm like, I'm on. This is me. This is this, this is, because in right. this moment, my brain is very clear. Here's the, here's the, here's the, I'm the fire truck, and there's the fire. There's the fire. Now I can go up and I can mirror and match that energy, yeah. and then I can take my hands from fists and mm. turn them and open my fingers, and then I can put my hands up on the kid's shoulders, and I can hold the kid. And I can be like, I'm not afraid of your fire. And I'm not Mm -hmm. here to try to put you out. I'm here to just try to rescue the innocent within. Mm -hmm. And that because we cannot think that we are here as parents or clinicians to change what they're going through. We're here to go through it with them in a moment as a guide, as a mentor to be in that darkness of the dragon's cave and keep reminding them, I know it's dark and scary. I know it's hot and sulfurous, but remember the dragon hid your gold here. We'll find it, Mm -hmm. but we got to get to the back of the cave. We've got to face this dragon. And I love you. And I believe you until you can love yourself and believe in yourself. And then we'll just love and believe side by side. And that's the mentor's journey. That's the path of someone who says, we got this. So to answer the question in the most roundabout ADHD way that I can think of, (laughs) I did this by doing it. The audacity of my belief system that I was born waiting for my parade has that, that superpower has simply been who dares wins. And I dare, I, I have the audacity to say, oh, I'm going to do this. And my dad was a healthcare administrator. He ran a hospital. Mm -hmm. Did I study from him and learn from him? Good God, no. (laughs) I absolutely did not. Did work for him, hated my job because I was a janitor. Couldn't stand it. But I do admire my dad, but I did not go to school for this. And I can't say I'm that good at it. Mm -hmm. What I'm good at is saying, this has to be done and we dare. And Mm -hmm. so we're doing it. Will we do it well? We will do it with heart.
0: And so worst case scenario, we will sleep well. Beautiful. Um, the last thing I want to cover today is um, something that I think is, uh, this is a, a question, you're the perfect guy to talk to about this. And it's, um, it has to do with sort of the, in my own journey, so to speak, Um, And I think, you know, the thing that stands out, I guess I'm I'm rambling a bit. The thing that stands about you to me is that you have a very clear mission. And what I'm wondering about is when uh, for a lot of people, that's the problem. They or that it's like they feel like, oh, I'm here on this planet. I've got this fire. I've got this energy. I've got I'm built to do something. But it's just not. You know, it's not like a paragraph. They didn't have a lightning bolt hit them from the sky. And they're wondering, what do you say to help these kids and and adults even organize around what is it? What are they supposed to be doing?
1: I love this question. I've answered this question for the last 20 years, being a facilitator (laughs) of personal growth and development archetypally. That's the warrior's question. You see, the wizard Mm -hmm. can take on any task and master it. The, the wizard are the high intellects. and we're, we're talking about archetypal personalities, the four prime archetypes, warrior, wizard, jester, bard. The wizard can take on any task and master it just because they're designed to learn and know, right? They may not understand. Understanding is experience, but they will learn and know, and they will know better than the best of us because the wizard archetype is truly the smartest among us. The bards will Become. They will become what it is you're asking them to become. The the bards are the Mm -hmm. true chameleons, but they're also the artists, the creative connecting communicators. They will. I remember my daughter writing a poem when she was 14 years old uh, about a prostitute, and it was called My Sore Ankles and S O A R. And it went viral in India. And men were writing her from this other country, strange men saying, I get it. I had not seen it before. She had reached out and touched um, a culture and a, a a a species that she had no idea about. She was a 14 year old in Boulder, Colorado. My daughter had no experience with prostitution. I am a pretty overbearing, overprotective, overwhelming father. She was in Boulder, Colorado, and and did not have yet no, but she could <laughs> feel it. She could understand it. She could. She could. Yeah embody and emulate the expression of what it's like to be a young prostitute who felt used up and tossed aside and tarnished and shameful and her ankles hurt because she was walking down the street all night. And that's the bard. And so they can play the role. They can take it on and they can let it go and move on to the next. The jester just is. They, they, don't, they don't have to have a mission or a vision or a passion or purpose. They can be at home running a business or at home in the woods with nothing but a metal cup and some pine needles and they're making some tea. They'll find a jar of peanut butter at some point later, whatever. It's all good. And it is truly the fool, the divine fool that can live by be, just being, not doing being, but being what you're asking for, Brett is the way of the warrior. What you're asking for is, how do you know what hill you're going to die on? How do you find that thing that matters so much that you would die for it, that you would kill for it? You see, we can't shy away, and I, and I, and I refuse to embrace the, the, the peaceful warrior because that's not the archetype of a warrior. It, it goes against its very nature. The warrior is designed and destined to find that mission, vision, passion, purpose that says, this matters so much, we have to change it and change it now. I will live in a tree for a year like Butterfly did. I will sail a little rubber raft in front of a whaling ship. I will sacrifice myself for something greater than me. You see, that's the warrior. Maybe the greater thing is a belt, like a bodybuilder, like a trophy. That's the Olympian. That's the sub archetype of the warrior. Maybe it is mm-hmm. for a country like a soldier who, who says, no, this country is number one and I will, and that's a, right or wrong. A warrior doesn't look at other warriors decisions and missions and visions and passions and purpose and cast judgment. If we're on the same side. Great. If we're on the other side, we're on the other side. There's a great Masonic statue called brother to brother. And it's a, it's a, masonic statue that commemorates the civil war and when masons would be dying on the battlefield they could throw up one of their secret hand signals and I'm a, I'm a 32nd degree Freemason, and so they could throw up one of their secret hand signals and masons would find each other and they would connect in the moment of death whether they were on the same side or not and to me that also symbolizes that as a warrior we recognize that none of us think we're the bad guy and we're all on a life and death mission. So what would you die for? What would you kill for? What matters so much that you would be willing to take a life for it? Now, before you shy away from that question, it answers some pretty intense beliefs. Would you die and kill for money? And I mean, that, that's a real deep value question. I certainly wouldn't. I would die and kill for my children. I would die and kill for my wife. I would die and kill for my mom and my dad, my brothers and their children. Family and that family loyalty is a driving force for me. I would die and kill to protect the innocence of children and dogs. Those are other people's children and dogs are two things that if I didn't have children at that facility, I would have dogs. And I have Mm. been responsible for feeding a wolf sanctuary for years. Because that is something that I care about is, is canine. Mm-hmm. So once you find that thing, it becomes very clear and your body goes, oh yeah, that orphans, mm-hmm. whales, the environment. And that is your journey. Your, your mission is to mm-hmm. find your mission. Your purpose is to find your purpose. Your vision is to find your vision. Your passion is to find your passion. And when you find it, you know, there's no questions. And it starts to answer the other questions. If you would die, if you would kill for your children, if you would go that far out of love, what else would you do for love for your children? Would you become financially free? Would you become? Would you aggressively pursue their opportunities so that would you would you clear the path in front of them? And would you do it from love? Because at the end of the day, the warrior gets the the smear of being the dark archetype, but really what a warrior does, they do out of such a deep, profound love, right or wrong. Mm -hmm. They do it with their whole heart. And that's Mm -hmm. where the warrior is the one that stands in front of the castle under the coat of arms, the coat of arms representing what the kingdom stands for and defends it with their life. Hmm.
0: Beautiful. Wow. Okay, well, now we have a master class on how to find your mission.
1: <laughs> so that's the archetypal lecturing that I do that you asked about before. That's the stuff that I travel around the world. I do a version of archetypal parenting and archetypes in business and how to read your clients and your spouses and all that type of stuff. Because these are four very distinct personalities, and there is no hierarchy to them. Mm, beautiful. Well, I want to just thank
0: you so much for coming and sharing your wisdom and your fire and your fire truck and the whole.
1: whole I'm going to put on thing. something for you. Hang on. Uh oh, what do we got going here now? Oh, there it is. Woot! <laughs> be do be do.
0: <laughs>
1: All right, now we're talking. So, yeah, so thank you so much, and uh, I know you're doing great work, and I I just can't wait to find some excuse to intersect your world again. Um, and um, I don't know what else to say. It's kind of like, wow.
0: <laughs> I really appreciate you so much.
1: You. Brad, just thanks for the opportunity to be on your show and touch your audience. It, it, it means a lot to me. All right. Well, take care, and uh, we'll talk soon.
0: So that's a wrap on today's edition of the Language of Mindfulness podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it. If so, please leave us a review on iTunes and follow along on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. We'd really appreciate it. And check us out at languageofmindfulness.com where you can sign up for a free coaching session. And because we get so many questions on this, you can access how to start a mindfulness meditation practice at languageofmindfulness.com forward slash now. Thanks a ton, and we're looking forward to a lot of great new content coming up as well. Have a great one, and stay present.